This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Great Lakes Kids Apparel. That's right. Great Lakes Kids Apparel offers affordable, wearable, and playable clothes for your little one to enjoy. Plus, Great Lakes Kids Apparel is a mom-owned business, so you know your kids will love these clothes. And Great Lakes Kids Apparel offers fast, free shipping on orders over $50, not to mention amazing customer service. So head over to GreatLakesKidsApparel.com or click the link in the show description and use promo code LOCKS to get 20% off your first order today. This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Audible. Audible is your one-stop shop for audio entertainment where you can always find the best of what you love or discover something new. That's right. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from mysteries, thrillers, biographies, and of course, true crime. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month from their catalog to keep forever, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Audible members also get access to thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, exclusive new series, and this very podcast you're listening to now. Plus, the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. While traveling, working out, walking the dog, doing chores, Audible makes listening anywhere easy. And best of all, Check the Locks listeners can try Audible for free for 30 days. So head over to audibletrial.com slash check the locks or click the link in the show notes to start enjoying Audible today. Warning, Check the Locks podcast is a true crime podcast and may contain graphic descriptions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and more. Check the Locks podcast is not appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome to the Check the Locks podcast. I am John Connor. And I'm Olivia Cornu. And thank you guys so much for joining us for a brand new episode and another terrifying true crime case. Olivia, before we jump into it, first of all, how are you? I'm doing really great. How are you? I'm excited to record this third episode. I am super excited and I've been looking forward to it all week. And I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, kind of before we go any further, I just wanted to say thank you. I, I know we share the same sentiment, but just want to say thank you to everyone who has listened to the trailer. At this point, episode one and two haven't even dropped yet. We're recording ahead, but we're the number one trailer on Apple Podcasts. We've had so much love and so much support. And, you know, I, I don't know if you want to expound on that, Olivia, but it, for me, it's just felt absolutely awesome. It's been amazing, like just seeing all the statistics and the numbers and everything, just with the trailer being out, it's been really exciting, you know, because we're just sitting back doing this for fun, making it a fun Sunday night. But it's so cool. So thanks, everybody, for listening and subscribing and following. We really appreciate it. Yes, appreciate it more than you know. And if you've shared it or posted about it or even just listened to it, again, we can't tell you how Grateful we are for that love. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much. And really excited about this week's episode. This was my pick. So Olivia, I am really excited to share this one with you because I think it's a good one. I almost did this one first, but I was like, I want to save it because hopefully people like episode one and two and they'll come back and this is just another one to kind of 
hit them in the jugular with something strong and hopefully it'll make people check the lock. So I'm really excited to get into it and break it down for you. And this one is personal to me and we'll get into that a little bit more, but I have a personal connection with this case, which makes it all the more interesting. And again, just looking to see how it's going to fall on the deadbolt test for you and if it's going to make you check the lock. So what do you say? Are you down to hear my case this week? I'm really excited to hear about it, you know, because I've heard this story and I hope that you share with all of our listeners what happened to you during this case. But also, you know, I haven't looked it up. You know, I I don't I heard about it because you told me kind of the the skinny version of it, the funny version. But I'm really interested to hear the, the details of what actually happened. Yeah, it's crazy because as I went back, this story happens in 2007. So it's literally 15 years ago. And so I go back and there was so many details about it that I had kind of forgotten or didn't really linger in my brain the way that I thought they did. So going back to revisit it all these years later, I definitely hit in a different way. So really excited. I say we get into it. We'll go ahead and jump on in. This is the Michigan thrill kill, the murder of Daniel Sorensen. It's the morning of November 8th, 2007 in Northville, Michigan. Antonio Monzo, a water engineer, was starting his long day of winterizing fire hydrants. As he was coming down the street, he noticed something at the edge of the curb. Monzo stopped and got out of his truck to investigate, and he is later on record as saying he did not believe what he was looking at was real. Monzo thought it was a prop or maybe a Halloween decoration that someone had left as a prank. What Monzo was looking at was a body without a head. The body was burned from the neck to the waist, burned to the point where you could see the ribs through the ash. Monzo took out his phone and called 911. Detective Michael Wilt immediately shows up on the scene, and what he is seeing is shocking him to the core. Wilt has never seen a crime scene of this nature and has a hard time comprehending what may have happened to the victim. How does a body become decapitated, mutilated, burned, and left by the side of the road? He couldn't envision who would do this to another human being. Detectives also found skid marks at the scene, which seemed to have come from a small pickup truck. And at this point, the body is taken to the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office. So I wanted to pause there and ask you, Olivia, because I was trying to put myself in this gentleman's shoes. But how do you imagine yourself reacting if this is how you start your morning? (laughs) You know what I mean? Going to work and this is what you stumble across? Yeah, I wish everybody could see my face right now. Jaw dropped, just kind of like, this is gruesome. If I were this person walking up and seeing this, I mean, I would probably be physically ill. I feel like I have a pretty good sense of like disgust. I feel like seeing that, just hearing that their body was burned so much that you could just see like ribs still there. I kind of envision Lion King when you're in the elephant alley or whatever it's called. Yeah, where the, uh, the hyenas hang out. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it just sounds sickening and gruesome. And again, who could do this to another human being? Yeah. And you kind of hit the nail on the head because given the condition of the body, medical examiners weren't sure if they would actually be able to identify the victim. Now, the fingers had actually been burned, but the medical examiners were able to pull a single print. The print was run through the database at the Michigan State Police Crime Lab and Luckily, the police get a match to the print and are able to identify the victim as Daniel Sorensen. So before we go any further, I wanted to talk about Daniel Sorensen, who he was, give a little bit of a background here. Daniel Sorensen was 26 years old from River Rouge, Michigan. Now, River Rouge is a very industrial area. There's lots of factories, smoke, a working class area. Some things to keep in mind about Daniel, he was over six feet tall and he was also over 200 pounds. So not a discreet man. He's pretty, he's pretty big, pretty noticeable. 
yeah, he is described as being very big and very, very noticeable. And as we go on a little bit, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about it. But he used that size to his advantage in certain situations. Now, when Daniel was a teenager, he had actually been arrested for having a sexual encounter with his underage teen girlfriend. This is why Daniel's prints were in the system. Now, to be fair, because when you say someone had a sexual encounter with an underage teenage girlfriend, keep he, in mind. Yes. And we're going to talk a little bit about it. But if you don't go into details, it can make it sound worse than it is. So Daniel had met a girl online and started a long-distance relationship. The relationship lasted for months until the girl's mother gave permission for Sorensen to move in with them for a while. Now, at this point, he was 18, and he believed his girlfriend was 16. When he arrived to stay with her and her family, he learned that she was actually only 14 years old. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now, the girlfriend's mother was aware of the age difference, and she was still cool with Daniel moving in. And in a 2008 interview, the girlfriend's mom, Joe Taylor, described Daniel as a good kid with whom she loved as her own child. However, Taylor's husband, the girl's stepfather, did not like Daniel and did not approve of the relationship. So he went to the police, and Sorensen was charged with criminal sexual misconduct. He was placed on probation and required to register as a sex offender. Sorensen then moves back to Michigan. And he has a hard time getting a job because he's on that sex offenders list. He also can't live with his family because of this. So they let him live under her parents' roof? Yeah. The mom was like, you can come down here. We know that, you know, you're 18 and she's 14. I'm cool with it. But I don't know if there was maybe, you know, an altercation or some rubbing of the wrong way between him and the stepfather. Yeah, I mean, I could have some issues with 14 and 18. If it was like 16 and 18, that's why I was like, you know, keep in mind. Because, of course, I mean, I dated somebody older than me, two, three years older than me when I was younger, you know. But the fact that the mom was like, it's okay. She's 14. You're 18. Come live in our house. And then all of a sudden the dad's like making a fuss about it. Eh, it's not. Yeah, it seems like it's a weird family dynamic and there's not yeah. very many lines of open communication because it sounds like as a couple – that's a conversation you would want to have before you let the 18-year-old move into your house. Move into your house. Right. Sorensen can't live with his family because of his sex offender status, and he's having a hard time getting a job, so he turns to dealing pot for money. According to those who are close to Daniel, he would often tell tales of being mob-related and play the tough guy. So that's where I was kind of talking about him using his size, his stature, to benefit him. Right. He had friends who have said that they never saw him fight, but if someone was trying to start an argument or maybe getting out of line, he was the guy who just had to stand up and look at him and it would diffuse the situation because of how large he was. So we've identified our victim. This horrible thing has happened and now we have to notify the family. Detectives break the news to Daniel's father, Jim Sorensen, first. They then drive him home to break the news to Daniel's mother, Kimberly. So they've let the parents know that their son has passed away, but now they have to go into the grisly details and exactly what happened to Daniel. Detective Wilt has said that it was extremely difficult to explain to the Sorensen family that all of his body parts were not discovered. Detective Wilt still needs to know more about Daniel, and he begins to ask his parents about his life. Wilt was focused on who Dan's friends may be, who may have seen him, and again, why would somebody want to do this to him? Now, obviously, Sorensen's parents were in shock, but are still able to provide Wilt with some of the names of Daniel's friends. Wilt begins his investigation by speaking to the people on the list. 
In talking to friends, detectives learned that Daniel was known to have a big heart and look out for the little guy. He was the give you the shirt off his back kind of guy. Detectives also learned that Sorensen would use his size to intimidate others in certain situations, which we had talked about. Dave Preed, a friend of Daniel's, saw him the night before the incident, and Preed told detectives that Daniel was going to hang out with a friend named J.P., This is the first lead detectives receive, and finding this JP person becomes their top priority. I have a question. Yes. Do they know JP's real name? Like, to look him up? Or do we just know his name's JP? Yeah, right now they just have JP. So they're like, we know we have to talk to somebody, but we have to figure out who this guy is. All right. So police question all of Daniel's family and friends, but nobody is sure who this person might be. Then detectives catch a break. Daniel's current girlfriend was questioned, and she remembered Sorensen asking to use her phone, saying that he needed to talk to JP. JP's telephone number was probably still in her call log, and detectives began calling every number in the girlfriend's phone. So can you imagine you just get a random phone call? Hey, this is Detective Wilt, Michigan Police. Are you JP? Are you JP? <laughs> nope, sure nope. not. <laughs> nope. Fine. No... No se habla de English, sir. <laughs> like, I don't even know what a J English. or a P is. That's we don't talk about English, I think I just said in Spanish. <laughs> is that no se habla de Bruno? But yeah, I, I couldn't imagine getting that phone call and being like, and even if I was that guy, I would probably say no. But during one of the phone calls, a male answered the phone. Detectives asked if they were speaking to JP, and the voice responded yes. Detectives informed him that it was important that they talk to him as soon as possible, and They knew that JP would most likely know more than anyone else about what happened to Sorensen. Now we're going to take a little bit of a deeper look at who this JP person is. After searching phone records, police discover that JP is actually John Pierre Orlowitz, who lives with his parents at their home in Plymouth, Michigan. Now, I am from that area. Plymouth, Michigan is a wealthy city. It's about 26 miles west of Detroit. And here's a little fun fact. Scream 4 was actually filmed in Plymouth, Michigan. So when when that movie opens up, you see the town square. My apartment was like a block from there. So So did they use it as Plymouth, Michigan in the movie or it was just Plymouth, Michigan? And it was like supposed to be California. It was supposed to be Woodsboro, which is the, yeah, which is the city from the, from the first movie. So it was cool. Like David Arquette. Oh, well, Michigan got a big film grant and all these movies started coming there to, to film. So Scream 4 was done there. This Gerard Butler movie called Machine Gun Preacher was done there. David Schwimmer from Friends directed a movie. So he was just hanging out in town. So there was a couple of years where people were just there all the time. My apartment was like, three blocks from there. So you would walk down and kind of see what everybody was doing. It was really cool. Yeah. Right in your, right in your backyard. Really? Yeah. So Orlowitz is a 17 year old senior at Canton high school. Orlowitz is a bright student and a football player. According to friends, Orlowitz had spent that summer drinking, partying, smoking weed, you know, just kind of a senior year summer, you know, not really a lot of cares, things like that. And his friends also say that he acted very mature for his age. So we're going to jump back into the investigation. Detective Wilt, he visits the Orlowitz home and is greeted by JP's father. Wilt explains that they are investigating a recent homicide. And in that moment, the detective could tell JP knew something, but wasn't really sure of what or how much. Wilt wanted to get JP to come to the station and talk there. JP agrees. His father signs off. What's very interesting is as detectives prepare to leave, they notice a Chevy S10 in the driveway. Now, this is important because police saw skid marks that look like they may have belonged to a small truck at the scene of the crime. 
The truck appeared to have been recently washed, and another detective managed to take a closer look at the bed of the pickup. We're driving back to the station. The detective informs Wilt that he believes to have seen bloodstains in the bed of the S10. Police seize the vehicle while JP is being questioned. So, I have a question. Do you not have to have a warrant to seize somebody's car? I'm not sure if you have to have a warrant or not. My thought process would be that seeing what could potentially be human blood in the back of a truck might warrant probable cause, maybe. Yeah, or just like, hey, like this looks like blood. And I don't know. They may have had to get a warrant for it. I mean, I'm sure a judge probably would have signed off if you're like, hey, we see skid marks at the crime scene. Could match this truck. There's blood in the bed of the truck. You know, I have him in for interrogation. Like, I guess you can get one of those quickly. You know, I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure something had to be signed off on it, but they were able to get it. While he's being interrogated, detectives asked JP when the last time he had seen Dan was. What was his account of the previous day? Who had he been with? Things of that nature. Orlois claims he didn't see Sorensen the day of the murder, but he had seen him the day prior. Now, detectives notice that Orlowitz appears nervous, and Wilt's instinct leaves him to believe that Orlowitz is leaving something out. Wilt believed JP knew more than he was saying, and at this point, Orlowitz was the key suspect, but detectives didn't have enough evidence to hold him. So JP is allowed to leave, and the detectives begin the work of investigating his truck. So the first thing that they want to look at is the tire tread and the stains in the back of the pickup. Police also wonder why a 26-year-old Sorensen would be hanging out with a 17-year-old Orlowitz. Ooh, I think I missed that part. I didn't realize there was such an age gap. Yeah, so Sorensen's 26, and he's hanging out with somebody, you know, nine years younger than him. So I'm sure if you're a detective, you're like, what's What's up with that? Yeah, what's the connection here? So there are several scenarios that kind of answer that question. First is from Daniel's friend, Dave Preeti, who we talked about a little bit earlier. He says that Daniel was a protector to JP who would prevent him from being bullied, kind of look out for him, stop people from picking on him. There are other reports that Sorensen was supplying weed to Orlowitz and his friends. So, you know, we just talked a little bit about how he had spent this summer partying and hanging out. Like, that's got to come from somewhere. So he's going to keep Sorensen, you know, in his back pocket because he's trying to have a good time. And Sorensen's there to take care of him and give him all the fun stuff. Yeah, and... The other thing is, is that JP is said to have owed Daniel 300 bucks for drugs that were fronted to him with a promise of payment later. So, you know, we've got this friendship that's got this weird age gap and this kid's like, hey, let me get you some now, but I'll pay you later. And then Daniel being 26 is like, hey, man, I need my money. Yeah. Or I mean, how I, how I see this kind of going down. Yeah, I see it that way. And I also am like being that age and running with a 16 year old, it's like, are you still trying to be young? Are you trying to be cool? Are you trying to press it? Big brother, little brother scenario. Like, I really got your back. I'm taking care of you like you're my little brother. Or is this like, hey, man, I'm still trying to be 17, even though I'm 10 years older than me. Yeah, I'm the cool older guy. You guys need, you know, beer or whatever. So with the information that they can get from Daniel's friends, the information that they attempt to get JP, police are working to build the timeline of Sorensen's final day. Detectives then speak to another of Sorensen's friends who state that Daniel was supposed to meet JP at his grandfather's home in Canton, Michigan. Now, this is where it gets a little bit interesting. JP, his grandfather, lived across the street from the house that I grew up in. I moved in oh there. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I moved in there when I was in third grade. And the first person that I met was a kid named Johnny. John Pierre. So Johnny is 
John Pierre. John Pierre. So to oh. to his grandfather, to his family, you know, they called him Johnny, and have known him and his family the majority of my life at this point. I used to shovel his grandfather's walkway when it would snow. You try to do it without him getting caught, and then he would come over in like shorts in the middle of December and like make you take twenty dollars. This is amazing. It's crazy, and I'll share some more details about it as we go on. But you know, I have a very vivid memory of moving in that house the first day and looking across the street, and there's this little kid on a scooter just scooting up and down the driveway. And all those years later, for something like this to happen, it's it's very crazy. Yeah, for sure. Keep going. I want to know more. Okay, you got it. So now that they know that Sorensen was supposed to meet JP at his grandfather's home, this is a huge break for detectives. They now have a physical location of where Dan was on the day of his murder, and police learn that his grandfather's garage had become the hangout spot for JP and his friends. Now, again, I can attest to this because... How many parties were happening across the street? Lots. There was lots of parties. Now, Jean-Pierre... Also had an older brother who was closer to my age who I was friends with. And we were, you know, a couple of years older. So we actually had our time hanging out in that garage. Yeah, you're like living this story right now. Like you've been in this crime scene. Yeah, we'll definitely get into the details of it. But that is something that has made this case something that's stuck with me. Because not only did Jean-Pierre and his friends hang out at this garage about a week before this incident. I was leaving my mom's house where I lived at the time going to get in my car and he was there with his friends, you know, like he had been all summer, you know, his friends were there, they were hanging out in the garage and he's you like, you probably saw Daniel. Well, he was like, Hey man, you want a burger? You want to come over and have a burger? And I was going somewhere and I was like, ah, no, I can't. So, but thanks. I appreciate it. Maybe next time. That's crazy. Yeah. The other thing is, is that his grandfather had dementia. And so while he still lived in the home, I don't think there was anybody at that point who was kind of monitoring what they were doing. So it was kind of like a free range place for these kids to hang out. So at first glance, it appears to be a normal garage. There's a couch, some tools, a tarp, other garage things, motor oil, stuff like that. However, police soon discover several droplets of blood and begin collecting samples. Now, this is another point that I want to talk about because... I remember the night that the police were there and they had the full-on CSI trailer. I mentioned this when we did the John Versations podcast, but back in my youth, I used to enjoy some greenery. And at the time in Michigan, said greenery was not legal. And kids don't do greenery, you know, or do, I don't care, whatever. But I was sitting on my front porch enjoying some young adult time and I look up and there is Michigan State Police, Livonia Police, Plymouth Police, and Canton Police, and they all get out of their cars, and they all start walking directly towards my driveway. Now, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea that any of this has happened potentially across the street. They're just cooking burgers across the street. Right. You know? So I'm in my early 20s with about a half gram of greenery on me, being like, I'm about to go to prison, and so I'm sweating my entire body as a knot. They get to my driveway and they turn, they go the other way. And the girlfriend that I was dating at the time was at my house. She actually had to stay the night because the CSI team came, blocked off the driveway. They had the big trailer. Nobody could leave. Nobody could come in and out. I was expecting the guy with the sunglasses to come in. You know what I mean? That wow. But yeah, you could see them with the black lights and the hole. And I was like, I don't know what is going on, but this is fucking crazy. So meanwhile, back at the station, Detective Wilt gets a call about the samples taken from the stains in the back of the S10 pickup truck. 
Test results indicate that it was, in fact, human blood in the truck, and police now need to determine if that blood was Daniel Sorensen's. Detectives were convinced Orlowitz had something to do with the murder of Sorensen, but could a teenager from a seemingly stable background commit this kind of monstrous murder? But everything would change when 18-year-old Alex Letkamin walks into the police station. Dun, dun, dun. Exactly. Let's talk a little bit about who Alex Letkamin is. Letkamin is an 18-year-old living in Westland, Michigan. Now, for people who are not familiar with this area... From Louisiana, like myself. Right. Yeah, if you're not familiar, this is Metro Detroit, so it's about... 25 minutes from Detroit. It's about 20 minutes from Ann Arbor. It's right in the middle of the two. And in this little clump, you've got Plymouth, Canton, Livonia, and Westland. They all border each other. So Leckman grew up in Westland, Michigan. He had a stay-at-home mom, and his father, Pete, was a scout leader. Alex had just gotten his diploma after finishing from an alternative high school. He was kicked out of his regular high school for a minor in possession of alcohol charge. Now, according to his mother, Diane Letkeman, after high school, Alex was getting deeper into drinking and drugs. His parents didn't realize at the time just how serious it had gotten or what types of drugs he was doing. Alex is also good friends with John Pierre Orlowitz, and they spend a lot of time hanging out and partying together. Now, on November 8th, the day after Sorensen's murder, Alex Letkeman walked into the police station. Letkeman informed Detective Wilt that he had witnessed Daniel Sorensen's murder. To be sure that Leckman was telling the truth, Detective Wilt started talking about the murder with him. And as the detective described what happened to Sorensen, he could see Alex becoming more emotional. Wilt noted that Leckman would tremble and dry heave as he asked how the murder happened and what it was like for Daniel to go through this. Wilt is convinced that Leckman is telling the truth about the murder, but he still needs to know why Daniel went to JP's grandfather's garage. According to Kim Sorensen, Daniel's mother, he believed he was going to the garage to help JP recover a debt that was owed to him from a third party. Letkeman told detectives that Orlowitz had called him saying he was going to kill Daniel Sorensen. Now, Letkeman owed JP $100 for drugs. Orlowitz told Alex that if he helped clean up the murder, he would resolve him of a $100 debt. So just want to stop and talk that through for a second because... If I'm going to clean up a murder, it's going to be worth more than $100. If I'm going to murder someone, it's going to be worth more than $300. Right. And these are young kids. I mean, in 2007, I was graduating high school. Okay. I'll throw my age out there. $200, $300 was a lot of money when you were like getting out of school, going to college, and you got like start paying your cell phone bill and doing all this stuff. So that's a lot of money at that age for these younger people. If someone gave me $300 when I was 17. I would have been the happiest person on the planet. Also, I would have spent it immediately. You know what I mean? I would be like, oh, I know exactly what I'm going to get with this. So it's just crazy to think that we're talking about cleaning up a murder for $100 as adults when you're like, take a cash advance from my credit card or something. You know, like if I really need it, you know what I mean? But it's nuts to think that all of this starts for $400 worth of debt. And so, I also make a caveat that I'm not going to murder anybody. Let's see how many episodes you get through and see if you still feel that same way. <laughs> so Letkeman tells police that he arrived at the garage around 4 p.m. to find Orlowitz laying out a tarp. He's instructed by JP to go outside and wait for Sorensen to arrive. At approximately 4.30, Sorensen arrives to the Canton home. Letkeman then described the events of the murder to detectives. According to Letkeman, as Sorensen entered the side door of the garage, JP was waiting behind the door. Orlowitz closed the door, came up from behind Sorensen, and slit his throat in one single motion. 
Lekkimen described feeling as if the air had been knocked out of him as Sorensen fell to his knees gasping for air. JP then stabbed Sorensen 13 times. JP, JP, like what really happened in JP's life? Yeah, and it's weird because I always knew him as a... A little kid on, like, the bike. Yeah. That's like murder. Like, we got a plan. Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting. But what happens next, I think, is even more interesting. According to Lekkiman, after Daniel has taken his last breath, JP looked at him and said, well, he sure made a mess, didn't he? Claiming that he was afraid for his life, Alex then helped JP clean up the murder. They didn't want anyone to be able to identify the body, so they took a blowtorch to his fingers so there would be no prints. JP then picked up a hacksaw and began to decapitate Sorensen. Sorensen's severed head was placed in a plastic bin and covered in Drano in hopes that it would help disintegrate it. The body was rolled into a tarp and loaded from the garage into the back of the pickup truck. Now, JP then calls a third friend for assistance. So, Who shows up next? Yeah, well, first of all, it's like putting out a tweet, being like, I just killed some dude. Come help me. Party at my at my grandpa's garage. He thought about this for a long time, I think. You're not going to think to just like blowtorch someone's fingers so that there wouldn't be prints. Like that's not something that if you're in a state of like mania or whatever, that you don't think clearly. And that's thinking clearly. That's thinking like premeditated. I got this blowtorch. This is how we're going to do it. Yeah, and I'm there with you because the murder is one thing, but as we go through kind of what happens next, I think it points very clearly that this is something that could have very well been planned. So this third participant shows up and was like, no, dude, I'm not, what? what? I'm not helping you. But he did give JP his shirt and pants because JP was covered in blood. So this kid just brought him extra clothes. It was like, here you go. Now, this participant wasn't actually charged because he cooperated fully with investigators. But after they loaded the body into the bed of the pickup truck, they drove to a subdivision that was under construction. They went to the back and dumped the body. They then covered Dan's body in gasoline and set it on fire. So now armed with Lekkiman's confession, the police arrest J.P. Orlowitz at his Plymouth home. Once in custody, J.P. does not say a thing. Now, at the time of the arrest, Wayne County Prosecutor Kim Worthy gave a television statement calling the murder a thrill kill, saying anytime someone kills just because they want to, and that's what the evidence suggests here, is bone chilling. 100%. Oh, for sure. Like, I'm really disturbed right now. It's a crazy story. And what's even more interesting, and I keep saying, you know, what's even more interesting, but it's just the way that it unravels. Lieutenant Mike Steckel, he was working the case as well. And what he noticed was that JP's demeanor was that of a sociopath. He was withdrawn and sleeping away. Alex Letkeman and JP Orlowitz were in cells next to each other. The entire time, Letkeman is pacing. He can't fall asleep. He's got his hands over his face. You can tell that he's worked up, that he's processing, that he knows that he's done something horrible. Yeah, and something terrible. I mean, something bad. Like, he could go to jail for the rest of his life. Like, he doesn't know. He's bothered by what is happening. JP, on the other hand, laid down, went right to sleep. Slept like a baby. So, no emotion, not really, I don't know if it's not processing what's going on. or if He's not bothered by it. Yeah. He's not losing any sleep at night about it. Yeah, literally, because he's sleeping like a baby. So the police now know that they have the killers in custody, but they did not know where Sorensen's head was. Jim Sorensen, Daniel's father, has spoken about the difficulty of having to plan a funeral, a burial, all of this for your son, and not knowing how to do it without his head, which is an insane thought to have. I hope I never have to have that thought. I agree with you 110%. As a parent, and you know, I don't want to be the guy who's always talking about like, well, as a parent, but... 
part of who you are, John. Yes, I have to embrace it. But as a parent, going back through the story now as an adult and having a family, I'm like, oh, this is horrific in a way that I did not understand when I was 21 years old, you know? Because Lekkaman came and confessed, they believe that he may be able to lead them to the victim's head. Lekkaman leads the detectives to the Rouge River, where the police are able to locate Daniel's head in that Tupperware container. And the police are also on record of describing the scene there. Apparently, the water was clear, and the tub, because it had the Drano in it, was weighing it down. So when they looked in the water, they could see his head looking back up at the detectives. That's interesting because the Rouge River, I grew up on the Red River, could be called the Rouge River, but y'all have a Rouge River, but our Red River or Rouge River is very muddy. You can't see your hand right in front of your face. So that's interesting that there's the Rouge River and it's crystal clear. Yeah. And I'm also sure that when you hear that the head has been thrown in the river, you're probably like, oh man, I've got to drag this whole river and it's going to be this big search thing. And then you get there and it's just looking at you. Staring at you right in the face. Yeah. And the whole time Alex Leckman is throwing up and just grossed out by being there. They also found out that after the murder, they had taken his truck and abandoned it at a local grocery store. And another interesting part about that is I remember very vividly seeing his red pickup truck outside of my house and seeing it frequently. Thought it was one of JP's friends. I didn't realize, you know, who it was. But when they showed it on the news, I was like, oh, yeah, it's been parked in front of my house for like three days. That's crazy. Yeah, it's it's insane. So now we have to go to the trial, right? Because the police know, hey, these are the two guys. We're going to charge them. Let's move forward with our case and prosecution. Jean-Pierre Orlowitz and Alex Letkeman are charged with first-degree premeditated murder, felony murder, and mutilation of a corpse. Now, Letkeman is offered a plea deal for testifying against Orlowitz. He signs a confession, pleads guilty to second-degree murder, and is sentenced to 20 to 30 years. Alex's father, Pete Letkeman, has said that in their minds, anything less than life was a win and a chance for them to see their son outside of prison again. And that's another thing that's been very interesting to think is if my daughter ever did anything heinous like that, just the thought of being like, now you're going to be in prison for this amount of time and I could never have the ability to see you outside of prison walls ever again. Even if your child has done something terrible. You're not thinking of Alex as a sociopath. JP, 100%. But like... Alex, he was kind of roped into something. And yeah, he should have went to the officials sooner, but he's terrified. He's terrified he's just an 18-year-old kid who's maybe done some drugs and some partying in his life, and he got hooked up with the wrong people, and now he's helped with this heinous crime. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. It's just, you know, how deep does your love go for your child, and what are you willing to you know say, this is terrible, but I still love you? You know, right, right. So Orlowitz actually ends up pleading not guilty, citing self-defense. Now, we had talked about this a little bit earlier because we had mentioned like, you know, it seems like he may have planned this or this is something that he would be thinking about. Prosecutors actually put classmates and friends on the stand that testified that JP had a dark and sinister alter ego. One classmate, Levi Webb, testified that JP had discussed wishing he could kill someone. Adam Dew, another classmate, testified that J.P. bragged about knowing how to cover his tracks well. In his testimony, Letkeman presented the information he had given police, but with more shocking details. Letkeman testified that after removing Daniel Sorensen's head, Orlowitz proceeded to hold it up and play with it like a puppet, 
and make the severed head talk. Let's stop and talk about that for a minute. Yeah, I have a lot to say. I'm one in shock because this Alex kid, I really am feeling bad for him. And I know he's probably going to be punished at the end because, I mean, he's guilty by association. And if my mom ever taught me anything, it was like, you're guilty by association. But the fact that this poor kid is having to relive this a second time when he, you know, he didn't have intentions of killing Daniel. Like, I just kind of feel bad for him, like where he is mentally. Yeah. And I'm also sure like when somebody calls you and is like, hey, I'm going to kill this guy and I need you to come help me clean up the murder. You think he's not being serious, right? Well, I think you would probably. But I don't even think I would show up. I don't. I, I mean, I wouldn't show up. But also, you know, according to his mom and some of their friends, they weren't just smoking weed. They were taking hard drugs. And, and if Alex knows how dangerous JP can be based off the things that he says, I could see where he would be worried. But also, like, call the police then. Be like, hey, I think my friend's going to kill somebody. I'd rather have, like, a boy cries wolf than get involved in killing and cleaning up a murder. Yeah, and I, I think it's, you know, one of those things that maybe... You're not thinking when you're on drugs. Well, and when you're a kid, you're naive. Yeah, and you don't know, and you just, you just don't know. You just don't think... Anything like this will ever happen to you. Yeah. And yeah, it's just, it's a crazy situation to imagine yourself being in. And what is also interesting is that in a rare move, Orlowitz took the stand to testify on his own behalf. So I know most of the time defense attorneys try to avoid that. They don't want you putting yourself in a situation where you may make yourself look incriminating or anything like that. But one thing that's really interesting is Orlowitz has a baby face. He's a 17 year old kid who looks like he's like 13, 14. And when he's in court, he's got like a blue collared shirt on, khakis, like he looks like a clean cut. He looks like a normal clean cut child. Yep, middle class white kid from a from a good family. So Orlowitz had claimed that he, Letkeman, and Sorensen were planning an extortion attempt on Adam Dew the day that Daniel was killed. Now, Adam Dew is also the one who testified that JP bragged about knowing how to cover his tracks well. Dew had recently inherited $40,000, and Orlowitz testified that the plan was to rob him. Now, when Orlowitz didn't want to go through with the plan, he claims that Sorensen's temper flared, and he had pulled a gun on Letkeman and himself. Orlowitz did confess to killing Daniel Sorensen, but stated that it was because he had turned his gun on Alex Letkeman. Now, the defense also brought Sorensen's past into focus. Orders of protection from people Sorensen had threatened or harassed were entered as evidence in an attempt to distort his good guy image. Police records are also presented in court that showed official complaints about Dan ranging from death threats and stalking. Judge Annette Berry said later that the evidence Orlowitz's attorney was presenting could have been enough to sway a jury. So after the fact, years after, the judge was like, they were presenting a pretty solid case. She could have seen it go in either way. Right. After all the testimony was completed, closing arguments were given. In the end, the jury deliberated for two days and sided with the prosecution. Jean-Pierre Orlowitz was sentenced to life in prison. And again, Alex Letkeman took his plea deal. He was sentenced to 20 to 30 years. Pete Letkeman, who again is Alex's father, he has since joined several organizations trying to change the system by making it easier for families to navigate the red tape and other issues that come with having a family member in prison. So he helps with visitation, helping families find resources so that they can get back and forth to visit their family members who might be in prison. So it was really cool to read something positive, you know, at the end of all this, because I'm sure, you know, as a parent, your child does something like that. I, I mean, that could ruin your marriage. You could turn to drinking. This is what makes me feel like 
Alex is a decent kid because look what his parents, they're taking a bad situation and turning it into something good for everybody. And so I feel like Alex was probably the same thing. And he just was 18 years old into the wrong crowd, wrong drugs. I feel bad for him. There's a lot of pictures of him in like Nirvana shirts and cheap trick shirts. And he had a little bit shorter than shoulder length, long hair. Uh, he looked like somebody I would have hung out with, like somebody that I would have been in a band with, you know, something like that. And mm-hmm. I think that kind of makes it hit home too, is that, you know, I was only a couple of years older than these kids. These kids could have been my friends. You know what I mean? How old were you in compared to Daniel? Uh, I think Daniel at this point would have been four or five years older than me. Okay. 2007. I was born in 85. I would have been 22. So he would have been four years older than me. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So again, Orlowitz is sentenced to life in prison. Leckman is getting 20 to 30 years. Daniel's mother, Kimberly Sorensen, has said, speaking from the point of a victim, this is a life sentence involved for everyone who is close to someone who is murdered by a juvenile. It isn't just the hearings and the meetings you have to attend. It's every time a birthday rolls around or a holiday, you relive it all again. Now, John Pierre Orlowitz did file an appeal, and it was denied by a three-judge appeals court on June 14th of 2011. And that's the end. It's a crazy story. And you're just so like, you know about it. You saw it. Like you saw everything going down. You've been in the house. That's crazy, crazy, crazy. This is like what podcast people who talk about crime think about. And you've like done it. I think this is like the best one. That's why I want to talk about this one because it is personal. And, you know, again, knowing the family the way that, that I did, I didn't talk about it when we were going through the, the case, but I was delivering pizzas at the time, and after he had been arrested, the media was all over his grandfather's front lawn, knocking on the door, and he had dementia. So he's coming to the door in a wife beater and white boxer shorts, and, and wife beater is a terrible term, by the way. I'm gonna. He was coming to the door in a tank top <laughs> and white shorts. That's what we called him, though. <laughs> and uh, I remember I got a phone call from my mom and was like, the neighbor just called me. They're all over the lawn. He, he had a caregiver, and if I remember, the caregiver didn't speak very good English. So she was like, can you leave work and go sit with him? So I was in the house, answering the door, telling reporters no comment. Like I said, I'd known this man like my entire third grade to 22 years old, essentially my entire life at that point. So it was heartbreaking to see that, number one, he had no idea. They kept asking him who Jean-Pierre was, and he would say, who? Because he knew him as Johnny. So right. they're asking him, you know, what do you think about what happened with John Pierre? And he doesn't know who they're talking about. He has no idea that this actually happened. He passed away, thankfully, not knowing that anything had happened in his home like that. So that was in itself a little bit of a blessing that, you know, as sad as that is, it's not something that he had to take with him. But yeah, it's crazy. So I did want to ask you, because now we're at the best part of the show in my opinion, is the deadbolt test, right? So I presented this story. I wanted to get your take first because when we talked about doing the show, we were talking about, you know, decapitations and all. And this, I felt like this kind of had it all. So I am really interested to hear what you think, where you would rate it. So what do you got for me? Okay. So on our check the lock scale in 2007, I was these young guys age. I was 17, senior in high school. 
And like, you know, I wasn't hanging out with the wrong crowd doing this or anything, but like, I mean, I could see people who were in my life at that time who could have gotten caught up in something like this. I can imagine somebody that I went to high school with, you know, hopefully would not do something gruesome like this, but I could see like relating to Alex where he just gets caught up with the wrong thing and something bad happens and then he's left to serve time in jail. So as a 17 year old girl, knowing that there was somebody that I could potentially been in high school with that could have brutally murdered someone like that, that puts me at like a nine and a half, 10. I have to say as an adult, because I know that you had mentioned like if you were this age and something like this happened for me as an adult, because I don't think it registered with me, you know, at 21, 22 years old. This is your neighbor. Well, not only is it my neighbor, but this is a thrill kill, right? Which after going through the case, and again, I'm not a lawyer, you know, the family has a website up that gives it an entire different version of events and, and their side of it, which that's good for them. Like they should be able to, to put that out. But the thing that really kind of shocks me is that if this is a thrill kill, this could have been anybody, right? Who's, who's next? Yeah. Or who's first? Is it just, I pick you. And when we went through the Baton Rouge serial killer episode, the reason it didn't resonate with me is because I was like, I'm not a single woman. You know, I'm not right. a nerd. I don't fit this, so it doesn't hit me. But this could literally be somebody makes the decision that you're the one who's going to go and you go. So that terrifies me. So for me, I'm at a nine on this as well, uh, which, you know, knowing the story as well as I did, I didn't expect until after I went through it all again. I was like, oh, this is fucking frightening. You know, you're looking at it a, a decade or more, you know, with all the details and you have pictures like, you have memories of this happening in front of you. So like, it's not that you're just like flashing to what your imagination's coming to. You're flashing to like vivid pictures that you've seen in person in real life when all the cops from every police department show up. You think they're walking towards you. Like you have those vivid memories that, you know, normally we can't relate to in our stories. And so if it's really a thrill kill, like who could be next? Who could have made him mad that day? Yeah, and and you're right too, because I can close my eyes and I can tell you exactly what the basement in that house looked like. I remember sitting with, we always just called him grandpa that he was like, just call me grandpa. And so we would call him grandpa. I remember sitting over there and he would just be sitting at the kitchen table eating duck's blood soup. Cause he was Polish. I can close my eyes. I can see what that garage looks like the car that was in that garage. And then to think that something so terrible happened there is kind of crazy to look back, you know, 15 years later and try to process that as an adult. Cause again, at 22, I'm just like, Whoa, that's, that's crazy. But you know, now learning about mental health and processing emotions and trauma and stuff. You're like, oh yeah, that was like a bigger deal than I ever thought it was. So, oh, a hundred percent. So does your family still have the house right there or they live somewhere else now? No, my mom had, my mom has been moved out of that house. She's been out of that house for about eight years, but they did tear that garage down. Whoever bought the house tore the garage down. So that garage is no longer there. And the last time I was home, the outside of the house looks exactly the same. So it's, yeah, I don't know if they did any renovating on the inside or anything, but. Do you think they know? Surely they know that something like this happened at their house, right? In a case like this, because it made national news and you especially in that area. You have to disclose that or. Now, I don't know if you have to, I don't know if a real estate, I don't know the law in Michigan, but I know in some states you don't have to disclose if something terrible has happened. If so. we have anybody in Michigan and in, in real estate, drop us a comment, let us know. Do you have to disclose if someone was murdered in the house you're trying to sell? Yeah, we that would be interesting to know. I could probably look it up, but I'm lazy and I'm not going to. Yeah, we have <laughs> listeners. Why would we look things up? They, there's someone in Michigan. Right. Listening. That's a real estate agent, right? Yeah. Yeah, I Yeah, it's just it's crazy. If you know the answer to that question, let us know. 
But yeah, that's that's this week's episode. It's yeah. a great one. Thank you guys for hanging with us and going through it. And uh, before we talk about the case that you were going to be presenting next week, Olivia, I thought it might be fun for people who have listened to episode one and two. We did say that we were going to read a five-star review. We were going to give away some loot, some swag, some merch. So again, at the time of recording this, episode one and two have not been released yet, but we've gotten some mad love on the trailer. Uh, Olivia, I don't know if you're able to pull it up, but I was wondering if you would like to read our five-star review on the trailer and call out the person that we are going to be giving a prize to. So our first five-star review says, I can't wait for the first episode. Bring on the murder. And that is from Just Your Average Millennial. So thank you for leaving us a five-star review. And we're looking forward to sending you some cool prizes. So Just Your Average Millennial, thank you for the review. You can head over to checkthelockspod.com. You can send us an email from the contact page. Let us know it's you. You can also hit us up on the socials. We are on Instagram at checkthelockspod. We are on Twitter at checkthelocks. You can also get a hold of us in our Facebook group. And let us know it was you. We uh, we got magnets. We got stickers. We will send you something cool. And if you want to win a prize, what do they have to do, Olivia? You need to go on to Apple Podcast and leave us a five-star review. And hopefully you'll be the lucky winner next week. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So before we close out, Olivia, I was wondering, who are we going to be looking at next week? So next week, we're going to take a look into a medical murder case of Terry Eden Maples Rashaw. Um, so I can't wait for y'all to tune in next week and kind of see what goes down in this medical murder mystery. All right. So if you guys want to be part of the investigation for next week's episode, please, uh, you can look up Terry Eden Maples Rashaw's Ray Charles, I think is what we were calling her. I want to leave that in because I think it's very funny. Uh, but Terry Eden Maples Rashaw's R-A-C-H-A-L-S. Uh, get yourself familiar. We're going to break the case down next week. Uh, and again, thank you for all the love. Thank you for the support. This has been an amazing week. We are so happy to have you. So happy to be doing this for you. And we will see you guys for the next episode. Don't forget to check the logs. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C.